Hey everyone, my name is Pastor Dina and thank you so much for joining us for Northeast Christian Church Online Services. Please be sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms to keep up to date with all that's going on here in our church. Also, if you would like to rewatch today's sermon, you can look us up on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcast. Well, thank you and enjoy the rest of service. Well, since attention was brought to my oldest son, I'd like to also say thank you to my younger son, Andrew, who is a behind the scenes kind of guy and he's helping on the camera every once in a while. But yesterday, both of them helped me uh, rake the lawn. And I just wanna say thank you for helping mom and me rake the lawn. And uh, just appreciate that, man. My body's aching. We got one of those big, blowers costs like 50 bucks to rent, but man, it's worth it. It just done. Those backpack ones just make you sore. But we, uh, I want to speak with you today, just a very unique and different message that uh, really would fall under the area of apologetics. I'm a pastor teacher. That's exactly what in Ephesians, the Bible says, God is called apostles prophets, evangelists, and that word pastor-teacher merged together. I would say that's definitely my calling, and I felt it necessary in the climate that we live with people like Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, people who are ripping the faith to shreds and are going unchecked, unchallenged, that we start to enter into some apologetics. And that's a fancy word for basically saying, let's, let's see what, what the facts are, what the critics are. Now, I want you to know something. A liberal and a conservative fanatic do the same exact thing. They start with a presupposition. They start at the same place. They have a presupposition. The Bible is wrong. The Bible is right no matter what, perfect in every way. And all of their arguments and all of their communication is just really coming out of that position. But a, a person of intellect, a person of intelligence, starts with an open mind, gathers evidence, looks at things honestly, and doesn't say, I got my mind made up, please don't confuse me with the facts but is able to say, I, I want the broad, big picture. And one of the great minds in our church, and some of the great minds actually in our church, happen not to be adults, they happen to be young people. Uh, and so today, I actually wanted to dedicate my message to every one of you that are under the age of 15 that are thinkers, and especially to Abby Provost, who is a very focused individual who decided she'd wear a red band, but I decided I'd make her face red by pointing her out to everybody. So I think you're a great thinker. I think there are many great thinkers in here. Um, Aiden Wright, you're one of them, no doubt. And then when they have Youth Connect, by the way, for those of you that don't know, we need to do a better job at communicating what uh, youth Connect is, because it's like your Youth Connect and you're newer here and you're like, what in the world's that? It's when once a month they'll take the young people up there and they've talked about all kinds of things from a biblical perspective from, you know, is Jesus God? Is, you know, what does God have to say about LGBTQ, RSTV, WXY, and Z? And they're, they're, they're going there with stuff and it's important that we talk about these things instead of just slamming it closed. And just for the record, I want you to know mine's green. Okay, so don't kiss me, but like you can high five and hug me and handshake me. But uh, today's message is going to need you to put your mind into action. We're going to worship God with all of our mind and heart. Those two are going to work in tandem. So if you would turn to your neighbor real quick and you'd say, pay attention. Okay. And the word tension is in attention. You're going to have to pay a price to get the most out of this service. You're going to have to pay with attention of your mind pulling and stretching. I believe that while we don't have a room that's packed half with people with their PhD, we have some very smart bi and trilingual people in our community. We got a whole lot of street smarts. We have a whole lot of intellectual smarts. 
a degree is just something that you pay for and you go through a process and you're acknowledged by it. But uh, many of you, one of the best readers I know is my father-in-law and he simply had a high school degree. And he's probably more well-informed than most people that I know. And I have a confidence that although some of the points of when I talk today are going to be what some would consider intellectual, you're gonna be able to follow it. And if you can't, I encourage you to rewatch this. In fact, those of you watching online and those of you here, I'd encourage that you even share this with people at lolag.org and it'll be under a recent message. If it goes the week after that, you go to older messages, it'll be there and absorb this. But we're gonna worship God with all of our mind here. And I want to talk with you this morning about the fact that the Bible is unique. Everyone say, unique New York. Now say it, Amber Phillips, say it 10 times as fast as you can. Everybody, one, two, three, go. After a while, you, you start to say stuff like, unique, you dork. <laughs> so it's a confusing title right from the beginning. But I'm gonna ask God to help us that we will worship him with all of our mind in this unique message where I don't just get a bunch of hoopla whiz bang and everybody saying amen and hand claps. But we'll have moments like that, but we're gonna to have to get there by using our mind. And so let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, to make truth accessible and simple. And yet, because of it in the truth that you've accomplished in your word being so unique, it would be profound and life-changing. Help us to move past our presuppositions, our preconceived ideas, and begin to step into uh, the facts and the truths as you have given them to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Heard somebody once say about the Bible, they said two truths about this book, and it's really this simple. Either sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And while many of us, myself included in different seasons of my life, profess to be followers of Christ and wear the title Christians, very few of us pick it up and actually engage it on a daily basis. And in order to have a walk with God, you really need to engage this book, or more importantly, you need to let this book engage you. And when you see an area in it where it's different than your thinking, really what you need to do is begin to change the way that you think and change the way that you live and conform yourself to God's word as opposed to trying to bend it or ignore it or take white out to it and just kind of continue on and say, nah, I, I, I buy some of that truth, but the truth. And it's interesting that when you go to a courtroom, you put your hand on a Bible and they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do, right? Well, the interesting part of saying, so help you God, is really reviving, it's really revealed and understood under truth. And that's where I want to really talk with you first here about the Bible being unique in its inerrant truth, inerrancy. In the 1950s or 40s, Pastor Dylan always knows the answers. Me and Pastor Dylan know everything. So you ask me a question, most of the times I'll say, oh, Pastor Dylan knows that one. And, uh, but we know everything. But it, I think it was in the 50s. Do you remember the Chicago Statement? When was that? I think it was the 80s. Oh, okay, 1980s. <laughs> You're so fired. All right, so it was a statement of churches, Bible-believing churches that came together, and they said this, we believe that God's word is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, listen to this phrase, in the original manuscript. What they're saying is, is that we believe that there was a point where God gave us the Bible, and it was the original, and it was inspired and fallible and errant Word of God in the original formats. And then they went on, those words infallible and errant, it, it, it's basically saying that we believe that God's word is truth and it's truth with everything that it says historically, it's truth with everything that it touches, our morality, it's God's word that it's not just simply a book that was written by people, but the Bible says in Peter, it says that no prophecy came by the will of man, but holy people spoke as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, God moved through people to write 
and he used their personalities, he used their life and their setting, but when it was done, he was able to say, that's exactly what I wanted to say. And so God is the author of that, but God always uses people. When was the last time that God gave you a hug physically? Let me ask you a question now. How many of you got a hug from somebody this morning? Raise your hand and just wave it. See, God uses people. Now, he uses his spirit through people, but a lot of what God does, it was in partnership with it. And it says it, that the sum of your words, and this is, this is what two verses say. I want to bring your attention to this. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119. That entire psalm is about the Bible. And then Jesus said it really simply like this, your word is truth. So if the Bible's claim for itself is truth, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is, it is God's word, then it needs to meet some standard. It's got a line to toe. It needs to be without error. It needs to be consistent. It needs to stand out from any other book that's out there on the face of the earth. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's fair? So if you're watching, whether by a recording or you're watching live now, or you're here in this church and you're listening here and you've kind of said, you know, I kind of, this is going to be great for you because we're going to walk through this if you keep your mind towed in. So would you slap your brother, kiss your mother, hug your wife and say, please listen carefully. Ready? Go. <laughs> All right. How many of you have been to college? Okay. In college, it is inevitable as one of your general education classes, and how many of you have been to high school? In high school, it is inevitable that you will be exposed to philosophy. Here's some philosophers for you. Just say, yup. Have you ever heard of Herodotus? Say, yup. Have you ever heard of Plato? Have you ever heard of Aristotle? And so we proclaim those things and we say, hey, these are, these are uh, the truths of this. Now, what I want to show you real quick is some, are, are some of these works, the author, like Plato, Herodotus, Aristotle, when they wrote, when they were alive, and they, and they wrote their work, but then the earliest copy that we have of their work and how much time between when they wrote it and the copy that we have, right? What that time gap is. And then on top of that, how many copies of this do we really have? So this, and then we're gonna turn our attention to the New Testament. Watch this, Herodotus. I happen to read it on an ongoing basis. Pretty stupid, huh? Hey, what are you gonna do? You gonna watch that Netflix series? Nope, watching Herodotus. Uh, I've had to, I had to read through this several times for my doctoral work. Herodotus has uh, about, been, was written about 450 BC. The earliest copy that we have is 950 AD. Now BC counts down 450, 449, 48, 47, and then AD starts counting forward. That means that there are 1,350 years between the time that Herodotus wrote and the time that we have a copy, and there are only eight copies, and look how thick this is. And we will teach in high school, in college, this is the authoritative works of Herodotus. So let's move on to my man, Plato. You know Plato, the shadow on the wall, what's reality, what's not? Plato has probably affected and infected Western thinking more than any other philosopher. His works date back to 380 AD, the earliest copy that we have of Plato is 900 AD, which means there were 1,300 years between when it was written and the copy, the earliest copy that we have. That's starting to run pretty thin. Then lastly here, let's take a look at Herod, uh, let's take a look at Aristotle. Aristotle wrote around 350 BC. His uh, most famous student was Alexander the Great. The earliest copy that we have is 1,100 AD. That means there was 1,400, one century, that, that is actually one millennia and four centuries of the earliest copy that we have at a time gap, and we only have five copies. Have you ever questioned if these are really the writings of Plato, 
Aristotle or Herodotus. I know what you're saying. Of course not, Pastor Paul. I didn't care about philosophy. I skipped that class. Me too. Now let me show you the New Testament. Now we're just looking at the New Testament. Look at this. New Testament was begun, written, I'd say 50, but I'm being conservative here because I have other scholar friends that are in here and I don't want them to beat me up and challenge me. I don't want to fight with them. 80 to 100 AD. The earliest copy we have is 135 years. That means that uh, 135 AD, which means that there's about 35 to 85 years between the oldest copy that we have. It doesn't mean that it wasn't written before then, but the oldest copy of this that we have is there. There are over, not five, not seven, not eight, but 5,366 copies of the New Testament from 24,970 manuscripts. Do you see a big difference between this? That's like me saying, hey, I got $5. My friend says, hey, I got 15. And then my other friend says, yeah, I got like 1,355. Be like, what? You're paying for lunch, dude. Now think of, think of this for a second. There are all kinds of types of versions that we have it in. These are like little papyrus that have sometimes a verse from one gospel like John and then on it a verse like Matthew. You have other ones that might have a few verses from John, a few from Revelation, and then the oldest full copy of the New Testament that we have is a version called Sinaiticus, and the reason it's called Sinaiticus is not because it's like a sinus condition. It's actually a book that was found at the foot of Mount Sinai at a place called St. Catherine's Monastery, and it was written in 330 A.D., it was found by the British in 1844, where it was just simply being kept and used and reused, copied, reused, and copied. And if you notice that little funny X is its symbol for that. So whenever you see that symbol, that means you're talking about, oh, this was Sinaiticus. And if you open up the Greek New Testament, and this is one of them that I have right here, I'm so grateful for going to a school like Gordon-Conwell where they forced me to learn Greek I had to learn not only Greek, but Hebrew. Not only did I have to learn those languages, but I also had to learn how to do text criticism. And the way that that works is at the bottom of the page, they have all of these symbols. Like for instance, the funky P72 means papyrus fragment number 72, uh, P78, um, and that's it. And then you can see the little X's there of Sinaiticus. And what they've done is this, they've gathered these 24,000 870 manuscripts and copies, and then they've looked at all of them, and then they have kind of said, which are the oldest, which are the ones that change it a little bit, and then they put a whole system down there, and they teach you how to interact with that, which I can still do to this day, and then when you're all said and done, you look at it, and they put in the top what would be the closest to the original version. Now, you can take a look at the King James, you could take a look at the NIV, the ESV. I like how the King James and the NIV, in some spots it says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts uh, don't have this. I would advise you not to get the newest version of the NIV. They kind of tweak, bump, twist, and, and mess with it a little bit. But really, there's no comparison to looking at the Bible in the original language. And you can't do that. There's only about two or three people, four people. I know Sam can do it. I know Ben Phillips can do it. But pretty much there's a handful of us that can only do that in here. So what does that mean for the rest of us? We're victims of somebody's translation. And we're saying this is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. And then for those of us that are in the mainstream of life, every once in a while someone will pop up and will challenge the Bible and sound really, really smart. For instance, a guy by the name of Bart Erdman. Bart Erdman was a graduate of Princeton University. Bart Erdman said this, he said, and it, this is his exact quote, the more I study the manuscripts translated in the New Test of the New Testament, the more I realize just how radically the text has been altered over the years at the hands of scribes. In some instances, the very meaning of the, te the 
text is at stake. In other words, what he's trying to say is, is, I've looked at all of these manuscripts. I've looked at all of these versions. I've looked at all of these adjustments. And I'm telling you, that Bible is so messed up, twisted, manipulated, and shredded. It's not even worth looking at it. Forget talking to me about it being the word of God. You can't even claim that you have the accurate book. In fact, I'd put more trust in Herodotus, Plato, and Aristotle than I would the Bible. And we hear people like that on a news station or on Oprah or Dr. Phil, and we're like, oh, shoot, this is messed up. How do I know if this is right? I don't read Greek. He's really smart. He came from Princeton University. Let me ask you a question. Can you get the message out of this? You have won $10 million. How many of you would like that? Y'all have won $10 million. Do you still understand I'm saying the same thing? Now look at the hashtag that got in there by accident, typos, scripto. You have won $10 million. 10 is written with the number, right? But then the, now the hashtag's over a little bit, and the word 10 instead of the number 10 is there. You have won $10 million. Say we have four different manuscripts, and all of them look like this. Do you feel that the message of what is being sent is messed up, and you can't understand it? No. Do you know that most of the mistakes that actually, that 99.5% of the Bible is consistent, and that, that that little difference, most of the mistakes are like this. For instance, here's what happens. Take for Jesus saying, uh, that John 3.16, oh, so sorry. I forget that when I change it on my, by the way, let me show you, uh, let me show you Bart Ertman. Isn't he scary looking? I gave him a black background. He's evil. Look at this. Let's pretend that all those squares are fragments and manuscripts that we find. And the first and the oldest one that we find says, the that God, the only son of God. And we see that in later ones. And then we see it in the later ones after that. So this is a, right close to the time of Jesus, a little bit further away, a little bit further away. And then all of a sudden, one of them removes the word only. And everybody copying off of him repeats that mistake for a century to come. But then we're able to look at all of these other ones and then we're able to say, hey, the, this guy is copying at a time like this, and that happened. Oh, he accidentally left out that word. Do you see how you can catch that mistake and just say, oh, wait a second. That's not like impossible. Now turn to your neighbor and say, keep thinking for a second. Because this guy is one of the best thought experts in this field, Bruce Metzger. World's leading authority on text criticism, died back in 2007, a beautiful man, incredible scholar. What's interesting is, is that he was the professor of Bert Ertman. And he would say this to you, in all my years of experience and all the handling of these documents, the New Testament is copied with 99.5% accuracy. I believe that we have the word of God and the mistakes that we find like those ones like the Son of God, the Son of God, he would say this. He would say, they're on target. We have it. We have accuracy here. Now look at another scholar that's out there. His name is Daniel B. Wallace. He wrote a book called uh, uh, um, Intermediate he uh, Greek, or the Greek New Testament. It's like intermediate. It's a higher level version of Greek. Another expert who focuses on all these scripts and manuscripts and he talks about Erdman. He says, Erdman ends up throwing out everything the problem was uh, with him, that he's putting the priority in the wrong place. It's almost as if Erdman's saying, find me one error and I'll throw the whole Bible out. You see, Erdman came under one of the greatest scholars at this of all time, and he was studying and seeing and looking at all these things that are getting tweaked or somebody falls asleep and writes it, and then all of a sudden he says, well, if it's errors, it's all messed up, and and uh, that's it. I don't want anything to do. And what's funny is, is that Erdman's not going on around the world debating that the Bible's messed up. 
His starting point is actually, I don't understand why a God would let people suffer. There's the problem. See, he has a problem in the fact that there's suffering in the world. And he's using the Bible as an excuse to say that the God of the Bible and the Bible of the God neither exist because somewhere in this man's life, he experienced a difficulty and a tragedy. And rather than letting it draw him closer to God, it repelled him further away. Have you ever met somebody that says, I've got my mind made up, don't confuse me with the facts? You ever meet somebody like that? And what's interesting is, is that Wallace read Herdman's works, and he said the remarkable thing you go through his whole book, and you say, where did he actually prove anything? Erdman didn't prove that any doctrine is jeopardized. Just because somebody gets up there and says that they're an expert and says that it's all messed up and they've got letters after their name. I don't put a lot of stock in my degrees. In fact, you know where my, my diplomas and my degrees are not? They're not on my wall in my office anymore. I put those up there because we paid a lot of money for my education. My wife would love me to get a refund for that, but the schools won't give it to me. Uh, but really, probably I might put them up in my father's house because he's proud of me for that. But they don't mean, and I don't merit or put anything in stock in education and degrees. In some cases, it's made some really proud people. But that doesn't mean that you're stupid and I'm stupid enough not to think what's happening here. God has given us a book, and he says the same thing that you and I see with the New Testament, we could do the same thing with the Old Testament. Now, hold on, because we're about to shift gears here. The same exact setup here, you're looking at a picture of the Old Testament and at the bottom are all those little symbols and different kinds of things. For years, up until World War II, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from the city of Aleppo, where Dylan's family originally comes from. And uh, in the, it's in the 10th century, around 950 AD, which meant that there was close to 1,000 years between the Old Testament's writings and the oldest copy that we had. And then one day, a couple of shepherds throw rocks into a cave at the Dead Sea. Those of you going to Israel will be there looking at this. They hear a crash and they walk in and they see caves filled with scrolls dating back. And instantly overnight, 1,000 years is shaved off of the oldest Bible. And guess what? Every book except for the book of Esther was found there. And there was no significant difference to the translation that we have today to what we have there. To me, that is incredible consistency. The man that oversees the Dead Sea Scrolls, he's a man named Adolfo Reutemann, and Adolfo Reutemann is my homeboy. Got to study under him, got a personal tour from Qumran community, and I'm telling you this, I say all of that to say this, if you kept your mind or you need to rewatch this again to let it soak in. The Bible is unique in its inerrant truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. God has given us a book that has sustained the criticism of time, that sustains itself through copy and being repeated and repeated over and over again. This is not Plato with a thousand plus years or Aristotle with 400 years. We have a book that has a copy that's within a, a, a couple of decades within the time that we have it that was copied from things that were written right at the time of it and its consistency holds straight that there might be a little thing here or there that we might need to tweak but they are not life-shattering earth transforming salvation breaking truths you and i have god's pure word and it changes lives and it stands firm forever and I want you today, if you're here a person of faith, to take extra courage in that, whether you fully understand it or not, to be able to say, I've, I've got the word of God and I can let God speak to me. God has said everything he ever wants to say and it's found in this book, but you can't say like Jesus, it is written if you are not reading it. Let me be incredibly practical. God can do more in your life by you giving him 10 minutes in prayer and 10 minutes reading through a gospel like Luke each day. 
than you constantly setting unrealistic goals for yourself that you never reach and just abandon. There are some people in our church that spend hours in prayers and hours in God's word. But some of us, we don't need revival like that. What we need is survival. And if you're here and you are a follower of Christ and you're saying, I I want God to change me, I want God to transform me, you just need to give him an inch and he'll take a mile. But you need to be a man, you need to be a woman, you need to be a mother, you need to be a father, you need to be a son, you need to be a daughter of the word of God. Otherwise, what we will have is what we experience now, a generation of people that can just hear people like Dawkins and, and, and all these others just give their little quick drive-by quotes as because they've got fancy letters after their name, not look at the stuff for ourselves and sit back and say, oh, they must be right, and yeah, why bother picking it up? Hand me the remote. We'll pick up the remote, but we won't pick up the word of God. And and I'm not saying this to your shame. You want to be a superhero for the kingdom of God. You want to be a super father or mother. You want to be a super student. You want to be somebody who's godly. Pick up that book for 30 minutes a day. Make your long-term goal to say, I'm going to read God's word for 30 minutes a day, and I'm going to talk to him for 30 minutes a day. That's your long-term goal. Start out with five minutes And let the year of 2022 be the year that you go from five minutes to eventually 15. And then 2023, 15 to 30. And 30 to 45, you will become a rock star and a usable vessel in God's hands. You'll find that your doubt will give way to truth. And God's word will speak to your life in a way that you never imagined possible. It's a unique book. It's inspirable. It's inerrant. It's infallible. In the original copies, and we are 99.5% close to having those original copies. I love this. The Bible says that it is unique in its inerrant truth, but it's also unique in prophecy. Listen to this verse. Now, when I say prophecy, I need to pause here and say this, or some of you every week will, will go crazy on me. Most of what happens in prophecy is what's called forthtelling or foretelling, uh, forthtelling. It's God's word speaking into man's heart and looking at the culture, and God gives a message that applies God's word to the culture and the world that's around us. That's most of what the prophets wrote is called forthtelling. But every once in a while, God will speak tomorrow today, and that is the foretelling aspect of God's word. Now, I'd like to put a caution out to you because it's easy to flirt with things like horoscopes, palm readers, and all kinds of junk like that. The Bible's explicit of that. Do not give yourself to that it's a, it, because it basically says to you that God doesn't talk to you and you need to find God, and that's, that's in, it, in and of itself an idolatry. If God doesn't say anything, he doesn't need to say anything to you. You just need to take his word, follow that trajectory, and you'll be in good shape even if he never speaks to you. But those kind of things, every once in a while, God will say, I do tell you what happens tomorrow today. I am the God, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. There are points where God says, I'm going to tell you tomorrow today. And I'm the kind of God who says, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly how it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that there won't be problems, struggles, evil, evil people, resistance. But God says, this is what's going to happen. And this is how it's going to end. Take now Jesus. Let's just pretend for a second. Let me put a different picture up here so we can, we can focus on this. What is the likelihood of eight prophecies of Jesus coming true? How many of you heard that he would be born in Bethlehem? Christmas story, right? He'd be born of a virgin. He would, he would be crucified among the wicked and buried in a rich tomb. All of these things are things that we see in the Old Testament. If you were to take the mathematical likelihood of this, there are some of you that are in here that can do this. I imagine the physicist among us can do this. But I'm not up for this kind of math. But here's what it looks like. Eight prophecies of Jesus to be filled mathematically says that the likelihood of that happening is one, to the ten, uh, one times 10 to the 17th power, which means that you have a one in a quadrillion chance of eight prophecies coming true. 
What is a quadrillion? Well, it's probably where our national deficit is headed. It's after a trillion, and then you have quadrillion. What does that look like in practical terms, Pastor? Give it to me simple, because I'm a, <laughs> that's just a little bit complex. Take the state of Texas, cover it two feet deep in quarters, put a blind man in a helicopter, let him fly around as long or as short as he'd like, and when he says stop, land, and when he gets out of the helicopter, that he would reach into the pile and he would grab the first quarter he puts his hand on, and it would be the only one out of those quarters that was marked with a red X, and he would grab it on the first try. That is what eight prophecies being fulfilled, one times 10 to the 17th power of one quadrillion to one chances. Now take a look at this. I've got eight right up here, but there are way more than eight. Let's just double it. You double that, 16 prophecies being fulfilled is one to the ten, one times 10 to the 45th power, which is a number I don't even know how to even, maybe that's Google, right? Like who in the world knows? When God says that he is the God that sees tomorrow today, he means it. He says this, he says, I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Listen, friend, you and I serve a God who can see tomorrow today, who was mentioning the names of people and kings hundreds of years before they were born, who was talking about the life the existence, the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus thousands of years before it ever happened. You can hold up Plato, Aristotle, and Herodotus, and you can hold up the Word of God and try to compare them, but there is no comparison. The Bible's unique in that it has been kept pure through the centuries, through the millennia. It's been kept strong and backed up because God is a God who can say things tomorrow today in a way that can't even be done in statistical math without blowing your mind and straining your brain. So when I say we have the word of God, like there's, there's substance to this. And it's insulting to me when I hear people who get up with letters on their name similar to mine that think that they've got the corner of truth because they don't believe that anyone who serves Jesus should suffer, and because they suffered, therefore they shouldn't have to believe in him, and since they don't want to believe in him, they're going to snipe and take shots at this book. To me, they look like idiots in comparison to the facts that are out there when you look at it, because God's been hustling and backing up his word. The problem is, is that most people work into this thing and walk into this thing called faith and say, I've got my mind made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. Do you know that a skeptic, a liberal skeptic, and an ultra-conservative fanatic do the same exact thing? They start where they want to end, and then they just simply pick the truths that they want to come to the conclusion, but a true scholar, a true follower of Christ is not afraid of truth and can listen to the argument, process it, and then apply the truth to it. And that's what it said at the beginning of this whole thing. Jesus said, your word is truth. And it's proved itself out in its inerrancy. It's proved it out in its, in its prophecies, but it's also proved itself out in an area that I love called archaeology. In, on Valentine's Day, there'll be a group of us flying to Israel for 10 days, and I'll get to do this for the 20th time this time, or the 21st time. This will be me doing it. I've been leading professors, Bible college students, and churches over 20 times there, and worked with a place called the Center for Holy Land Studies. Now I'm working with the Southern New England Ministry Network, where we're going to be taking churches and others. It's going to be mostly us. And by the way, there's room for more if you would like to come. The COVID crisis is, is definitely changed things. But look at this verse. It's a simple verse. When Joshua and the Israelites came into the promised land, God said he would part the water. He parts the water. And then while the water's open, he says, Joshua, take 12 stones from the middle of that, that river. So they take 12 stones and he says, pile them up. They pile them up 
And he says, why are, why are we doing this, God? And God says, I'm, you're doing this because not every generation will experience what you experienced. And so when your children ask, why are these stones here? Stones, by the way, don't disappear. He says, why are the stones here? You will tell them, this is when the Lord brought us through across dry land and did a miracle. You know what one of my biggest frustrations for everybody the age 40 and over is that we're not talking to everybody 39 and under about what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have read, what we have witnessed, what we have experienced about the power of God. And it's no wonder we have a generation that's looking at Christianity skeptically and says, that's optional. They have not heard and we have not done what God said, declare from one generation to the next what the Lord has done. He says, put down some rocks. Well, you know what? Some of them were intentional. Some of them were accidental. Now, I don't want to pick on the Mormons, <laughs> but it's a great example. Book of Mormon, a man by the name of Joseph Smith claimed that he found a piece of rock that had writing on it, and he found these special glasses, and when he put on the glasses, he read the rock, and it told him about a future, a different gospel called the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus rose to ascend to heaven, he stopped he went sideways, he landed in the Americas, and he traveled through the Americas preaching a new gospel. And it talks about a city that stretched. It's this, so he took his glasses, he took that stone, it took root, it's, it's back to the 1930s, so now it talked about a city that stretched all the way across the Americas from one end to the other. I'm sorry, but there are no stones, there is no archeological evidence of any of this. But when we go on the 14th to Israel, I can take you through that entire country and show you place after place, city after city, location after location, artifact after artifact of things that show that it is not only, uh, uh, the Bible is not only this a long time ago in a land far, far away, but these are actual places, there were actual people, and these were actual events, and that when God says that his word is truth, it's true to the history as much as it is to the mystery of shaping our spiritual formation. It's also true and historically accurate. This archaeologist here, his name is Eli Shukron. Eli Shukron's my homeboy. He is the archaeologist that if you want to put a shovel in the ground in Jerusalem, you got to get his permission. In the Galilee, the other man up there, his name is Mordecai or Moti Aviam. You can't dig in Israel, in the Galilee, where Jesus lived most of his, and 70% of his ministry took place up there. You can't shovel in the ground without his permission. But they could take you on a journey of things that they and others have found. For instance, a long time skeptics were saying, King David didn't live. We just read about him in the Bible and people that believed in the Bible. King David wasn't real. And then all of a sudden, somebody dug up in the city of Dan, what they call the Tel Dan inscription, and right there in stone chiseled thousands of years, it says, the house of David. Oh my goodness, the Bible might be right. And so they find word, physical evidence of David. We talk about in the Bible of King Hezekiah, but people are like, eh, is he really real? Did he exist? Yes, kings would have rings with imprints in them, and when they sent letters, they would put it as like a wax seal, but they would use mud, and they'd put it on the letter to seal it and send it off. You're looking at the, the ring impression of King Hezekiah, who at his right hand was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Guess what we found? We found the imprint of Isaiah himself. It could very well be that this mark that you see on Isaiah, sorry, right there. On Isaiah, nope, there it is. That that was over the first copy of the book of Isaiah. There it is. You can't tell me these are made up stories and crazy things and inconsistencies when you have to look these facts in the face of material culture and say, nah, I don't know, I don't believe it. Even Jeremiah had for a while a guy who was his right-hand man named Baruch, and Baruch copied and read off to the king some of the writings of Jeremiah, and we found his seal imprint with his name on it. 
I mean, we could go on and on. They used to say that they didn't believe that Pilate was a real figure, and guess what we found? We found not only his ring, we found a Latin inscription with his name on it, dedicating a temple to Caesar. Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a child, guess what? He died, and he has a coffin. And in fact, he was so hated, we don't even have the whole coffin because they smashed the living daylights out of it. You're looking at the tomb of Herod, the man who tried to kill Jesus when he died, He had to put 2,000 people to death in an arena because he was afraid that no one would mourn his passing because he was so wicked. And he tried to kill the Son of God, but he didn't succeed. And then Caiaphas came along and he gave consent to the Jewish leaders of the temple and provoked Pilate to have Jesus crucified. And he was buried in this nice, cute, beautiful, Gucci tomb. (laughs) Isn't it so nice? Here's the truth. Caiaphas' tomb was filled with his bones. The tomb of Jesus is empty. Jesus is risen from the dead. We're not looking at some kind of story that isn't backed up consistently. Joshua set up 12 stones, and they're there to this day. God has backed his word, not like the Book of Mormon that talks about things that we can't find, but we dig year after year after year after year with fact after fact after fact. God has given us his word. It's an error, and it's fallible. It's God-breathed, and it's available to you. Read it. Get rid of your stinking thinking. How many of you are in a worse place now than you were 10, 20 years ago? I guarantee you it is concurrent with you allowing God to speak into your life through this book and you being in his presence here or in any church. And God invites us to say, let me talk to you again. And when you find things that disagree, here's what I love about Jesus. He'll always love you. Sometimes he'll disagree with you, but when he does, that's an opportunity for you to change your thinking and not for him to change his. And I think from all of these examples, they give us an example that says that we shouldn't be sitting back like an like a, uh, entrenched skeptic with our arms crossed saying, prove it, prove it, prove it. Like somebody that's already made up their mind, they're just going to ignore that, but that we objectively and honestly look at God's word for what it is with the facts that are available. And I am so sick and tired of a voice of people with letters after their name like mine for educations like mine that are sitting there and destroying the minds of young people and young adults all over the place. I'm angry. Because God has set those stones. It's unique in its survival. People have been trying to eradicate this book and its believers since the beginning. Look at this. For the first 300 years of Christianity, we were made sport of. It was illegal to be a Christian. Every time you said Jesus was Lord, you were also indirectly saying, and you Caesar are not, which was punishable by death. You didn't go to church and give your life to Jesus because your life was bad and you wanted God to make it good. You realized you needed Christ and that it might cost you your life, but that he was your life. And for that, they would put believers in the arena in Rome and around the Roman world and find entertainment, nailing them to crosses, lighting them like torches, putting them in huddles, releasing lions on them. And still, after 11 emperors trying to destroy Christianity, eventually Christianity overtook the Roman Empire. Constantine legalized it. His mother protected and established the three oldest churches in the world today, which those of you going to Israel will see when we're there. Christ brought the Roman Empire to its knees. In the time of the Enlightenment in the 1700s when America was becoming a country or the idea of America was in the colony phase, a man by the name of Voltaire was in Europe and he chuckled and he laughed at faith in Christianity and he said, a hundred years after I'm gone, the Bible will be gone. That's his home where his life, his thoughts, and his statements flowed from there. You know what happened after he died? It became the home of the Geneva Publishing, Bible Publishing Society, and they set up shop, and while he was gone, 
for hundreds of years after he was dead, they published thousands upon thousands of versions of the Bible. Men like Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong. There were five years in Russia that were called the days of God, the, the, the years of godlessness to eradicate any form of God. Before this time, there were 46,000 churches in Russia. When it was over, by the time World War II came, there were only 200. All the rest were turned into museums to atheism. And yet, while that was taking place and the Christians were suffering, the gospel grew and expanded. And when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the gospel rushed in to Russia. I'm not saying that the Bible is without challenge. I'm not saying that the world is without suffering. I'm not saying that people aren't trying to destroy God's truth. Wherever there are people, there'll be those that want God and ones that want to write him out of the story. But this book is unique. It's unique in its inerrancy and its infallibility, its preservation. It's unique in its prophecies. It's unique in its, its sustainability that it suffers and still comes out stronger than ever before. And in this last century, more believers have been killed for their faith than all other centuries combined. We are in the greatest season of martyrdom. We may not have freedom of faith in the kingdom of God. We need God's word. What if they take it away from you? How will you hear from God? I had a friend who was working on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was a mentor, professor, Wave Nunnally. And as they were doing it, they were using all kinds of resources because they'd say, how is that Hebrew word used over here? They had an entire library and every once in a while his professor would hold up his arm with a serial number across it from Auschwitz and he would say, stop. And he'd begin to quote from memory for five minutes, 10 minutes. Longest he said he ever did, it was 45 minutes from memory. And many of us can't even remember the grocery list when we go to the store. Now it's a different day that we live in. But the, the Jewish way of teaching, Mishnah, which means to repeat over and over again, they would do that. They'd repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. They would marinate in God's word. Some of us in this church, we need to get some verses and start writing them out and memorizing them. I'd rather have 10 verses that will hold me when my life is falling apart than to find out that I just trusted to find it on the internet or here or just listen to it on Sunday and it was not within my reach or grasp in the hour of my need. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. See, at the end of the day, what comes down to this book is that it's unique in its authorship. It's inspired by God, but it was written by people. See, God doesn't possess people and God doesn't clone people. He uses people. You and I were created in the image of God. And what he did is, is he found a guy by the name of Jeremiah who was very anxious and who was afraid to take a stand and put his life in the most hostile time and said, Jeremiah, don't say you're a child, but everything I tell you, speak. And you read in the writings of Jeremiah some of the boldest, scathing critiques against the backslidden church of that day. And then him going home and agonizing over the fact that God asked him to do something. If we only do what's comfortable to us rather than what God would want us to do, we're never gonna really walk in the full will of God. Sometimes God will ask you to do something because you know why he uses people nervous, anxious people like Jeremiah, who said Isaiah was the Shakespeare of prophets. There's a reason why he would walk right into the king's palace. God uses us according to our gifts. You could say what you want about Peter and Thomas, Peter putting his foot in his mouth and Thomas doubting. But let me tell you what, if you never doubt, you never thought. And when he touched those hands of Jesus, he said, my Lord, my God, and he went to the nation of India where he was killed, martyred for his faith. 
And Peter, who Jesus one moment saying, my father's revealed this in heaven to you. And the next moment he's saying, you're not going to suffer on the cross. And he says, get behind me, Satan. When they were asking him to be crucified, and they were telling him, you're going to die and be crucified. He said, do not crucify me right side up. Crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die the same death that my Lord died. What would make people face their end fearlessly? It would be because this book is like no other book. It's unique because all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God breathed. That same word is the word that God used to breathe the breath of life into man and into woman. Not only that, but when these writers were writing, it said that no prophecy was given by someone in their own mind and interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced, it was produced by the will of man, never, but it was when they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the interesting thing about this book that makes it different from every book ever written in the entire world, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, the NIV, the ESV, the KJV, whichever you read, God has made it accessible to us in our Santa Biblia, whatever language. What makes it different is, is that the Bible says that there is a God in heaven who has left us his spirit. And as you begin to read this, God just goes. And the breath of life comes into us. And that hopelessness gives way to hope like a fresh breeze in a stuffy office. It gives us hope like the group of 20 people that were maybe 15, 20 people that were in grief share surviving the holidays just yesterday as they were there saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this without my husband, but I know that the only way that I can do it is with Jesus. I just say thank you to Marcel and Vivian for your faithfulness in that ministry. And we're believing that same thing for divorce care with all of Ellen's efforts. She didn't, she'd hate that I'd even do this. I want you to know something. She took the money for her law firm and business and turned it and invested it in promoting surviving the holidays for divorce care because she wanted to see that people could come and hear that God has a book and it's his word and he has a spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that whether you're in the middle of a deep loss or a deep difficulty or you're torn, that God is and Jesus is your hope and he's accessible to you and he's given us a book. And if the Bible says that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word, that comes from the mouth of Father, the most confrontational moment where God in heaven and Satan from hell were face to face. He said to him, it is written. But you cannot say it is written if you never read it. And you'll miss all that God has for it. You're skeptic? Don't be, don't be an immature skeptic. Be a mature one. Open up the book. Give God an inch and he'll take a mile. How many of you want to hear God's voice in your life? How many of you want to be filled with joy and God's spirit and God's power and presence to overcome difficulty? How many of you would love to know that whether God heals your cancer or not, that you could face tomorrow because you know a God in heaven who came to earth and died for you and has prepared a place in heaven for you? That hope is all found within that book and he wants to breathe life into you again. And for some of you, it's been a long time since you've heard him speak. And here's my challenge to you. Across this room, let's stand to our feet. And as the worship team plays, I encourage you to praise and turn it into a prayer. And if you would, I invite you to come up here, maybe for some of you that say, you know what, everything he's been saying, I could have responded to this at the beginning of service and knelt down and found a place to pray, but, but I'm gonna do it now. Some of you need to recommit to God's word because you've been neglecting it in your life. Some of you have been a skeptic and, and you're, you're an honest skeptic because you've heard a lot of voices, but some of the things that I'm saying today, you're like, I never heard that, I didn't know that or whatever. 
then my challenge to you is this. Come up here, find a place, kneel down, and say, oh God, help me to, help me to give you a fair chance. God can handle criticism. God can handle skepticism. Or maybe some of you are going through some deep, dark moments in your life, and you're like, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it. God wants to speak his word to you, to strengthen you and comfort you, to have realistic expectations of what might and might not happen, to offer that to other people that are suffering, wherever you're at. I think we need to commit ourselves to the word of God because it is a unique book that has stood the test like no other book that God would breathe on us this morning. Amen. I know I've gone longer than I normally do, but you just can't talk about something like this with the quality that I did to get across to you what I did. But Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I just thank you that we can worship you with our mind. There are people in this room that have been gifted with gifts of the mind. And God said it, I believe it, that settles it, just doesn't do it for them. But sometimes we need this. But Lord, in our own simple way, some of us have abandoned the book of God. And that's created distance between us and the God of the book. And some of us, Lord, we need your fresh God-breathed, God-breathed, that God-breathed scripture in our life again. So wherever it's at, whatever it is that we need to come forward, Lord, we give you our lives. We give you this time as we give the church this song to respond at this altar to you in Jesus' name. So altars are open. I encourage you to find a spot between just you and Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us for service today. To rewatch today's sermon, you can search for it on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. And again, to keep up with all that's going on here at the church, you can go on lolag.org or ne-cc.org. Thank you again and have a great day.